Good morning and welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Colin, this is my wife Liz. Uh, it's great to have you with us today. We've been in this series for the last two or three weeks that we're carrying on this morning. Uh, I think as I look out over this crowd this morning, and I know the majority of you and a little bit about your background, I'd probably say that maybe a third or maybe a half of you kind of grew up in some kind of church uh, as a kid. And if you did, you probably experienced some kind of Sunday school experience, right? And some kind of thing where you get, you know, shuffled out to the back, uh, the colder part of a building um, uh, where the parents get to do this kind of stuff, you know? And so you are probably experiencing some of those stories like Noah and the Ark and some of those biblical classics uh, like Daniel and the Lion's Den um, or the boy that came to Jesus with five loaves and two fish. And I'm sure that's like normal fodder for our own Anthem Kids program as well amongst other stuff. And uh, by the way, our Anthem Kids program is awesome. And I love our team, Brittany and the others. Come on, let's give them some love, even though they can't hear us. Uh, and if you haven't, if your kids haven't experienced it, I, I would highly encourage you to send them out there, especially not sit through this this morning. This kind of might have a, at least a PG 10 or 11 rating at some parts of the message here this morning, or 13, depending on, you know, your, well, okay. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there are definitely some passages of Scripture that aren't kind of material for Anthem Kids or for any kids' programs. And some of you find it a bit of a shock when you find it, wait, what, that's in the Bible? You know, that kind of stuff. So um, there's definitely some parts of the, the Old Testament that you would think, well, I don't think we'd bring that section up in our kids' program, right? There's a city that is so wicked that he sends these two angels to, um, and disguises them as humans and sends them to the city that's so wicked. And he says, if I, can fi- if I can't find 10 righteous people in this town, then I'm going to obliterate the entire town, the whole city. This is Sodom. Um, and so he, these two disguised angels show up, and they end up taking shelter at a man named Lot's house. And Lot like, lets these men in, but then the whole town kind of comes to his door and wants to, uh, are demanding that Lot turn these angels over to them so that he can torture and rape them. Let's say PG-13, right? Um, And so in Genesis 19, 4 and 5, it says, before they had gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surround the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. And at first, Lot tries to reason with them and says, you know, don't do this. But then he's like, oh, but then he kind of gives in and he doesn't stand up for them. Um, but then he, and then he, and then he offers up his own daughters as an alternative to the mob instead. And so Genesis 19, 6 and on says, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. Shocking, right? This is, this is a story in the Bible, right? Like, this is not a story we expect to hear. And it's stories like this that kind of make you think, wow, like, is the Bible sexist? Does the Bible condone abusing women? Is, is, is God himself sexist? And uh, if you're wrestling with this kind of story and you kind of, it makes you, maybe, maybe you, you've heard these things and you think, you know what, because of these sort of stories, I'm just going to reject God. You're not alone. Mm. Yeah. 
If you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been using this tagline, God Behaving Badly, as kind of like the title for this, uh, this series that we've been in. Just looking um, honestly at, at some of the passages of the Old Testament that give people cause for concern, and they wonder if God is sexist, or if God is, is violent, or if God is gracious or legalistic. And so uh, today we wanted to ask this question, is God sexist or empowering? And I think it's a question that followers of Christ have been kind of going on different sides of for many years. Um, Now, I want to remind us that during this series, we're trying to remember to use the word Yahweh as the name of God that we're using. Yahweh was the name of God that he gave, that he asked the people of Israel to call him by when they were addressing him. And in a sense, it was as if God was asking people to address him by his first name. It was an intimate, personal name. Um, some theologians even say that the, the word Yahweh is like the sound of breath, Yahweh, and that it is the sound of our breathing, the first thing that we essentially say the day we're born and the last name that we say the day we die, is that throughout our life we're declaring the name Yahweh. And it's a, it's a, a name that is used 6,800 times in the Old Testament, and it's a reminder to us that God wants a close, intimate relationship with his people. Whenever you see in your Bible the words, the Lord Almighty written, and the word Lord is kind of capitalized with small caps, that's a reminder that it's the word Yahweh that's being used right there. You know, what we believe about God, what we believe about God's nature will impact the way that we come to him and will directly affect how we approach God. You know, the people in the Old Testament Despite the passages of Scripture that we read that we don't fully understand, they wanted relationship with God. They wanted relationship with Yahweh. They wanted to be with him and be close to him. So the question we're going to be wrestling with, is God sexist or empowering? So let's look at what the definition of sexist is. So it says here, characterized by or showing prejudice or discrimination, typically against women on the basis of gender. Uh, So before we look at the big picture here, let's take a look at this specific story of sexism in the Bible, okay? First of all, the culture that was surrounding this story was extremely sexist. Um, it was, it was this, the story, the culture, that place, women were not valued. But however, just because a culture or a story... um, is sexist doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible that or the, the writer or God is sexist. So let me take um, the this is today's Boston Sunday Globe. I don't know if anyone if you, anyone reads this anymore. But it's called a newspaper. It's called a newspaper. For anyone under thirty. Uh, <laughs> Kids, this is a newspaper. Um, so, uh, yeah, but this, so th- there's a lot of stories in here. I mean, there's some, you know, nice stories in here. There's some, like, really distressing stories, stories of where people have there, – there's some major stories of injustice in this, in this paper. There's stories of crime. There's stories of, of – there's violent acts in here. There's, some, there's a lot of variety of things that are reported in this paper. Now – just because those stories are reported in the paper, does that mean that the, the editors or the writers of the paper would condone those acts, 
those stories. They would say, oh, this is a, we, we believe this is a, we agree with this, or we, we condone or we support, we think everyone should murder people, or, you know what I mean, right? So, so my point in that is a lot of times people will look at, at the Bible, they'll hear stories, and they'll, they'll see stories written in there, and then they'll come to the conclusion right off that, well, it's in the Bible, it's, I don't agree with it, I don't like it, therefore God, they'll characterize God, and they'll say, I don't want him. I don't, I don't agree with him. But the thing about this particular story, in this one, Yahweh was not really sexist. Let's go ahead and look at the rest of this story. Um, and, and these stories are, they're descriptive, but they're not prescriptive. They're describing what happened, but they're not saying this is what we sh- believe should be happening. Um, God was not the one who offered up those girls, Lot, who isn't really characterized very nicely in the, in the Bible. He was the one who offered up his own daughters. I just can't believe that, but, but that's what happened. So Genesis 19.10, this is kind of carry on the rest of the story, but the men, which was like they were, dis- they were actually angels disgui- disguised as men, um, they, the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then what happened was, th- then they, the angels, struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they couldn't find the door. So basically, you're seeing these angels, Yahweh, coming and like protecting these girls from what was going to happen. In this story, it's Yahweh that acts justly. There's nothing to suggest that he condones these, those sexist acts of, of Lot. But this is a great example of how far the people had gone away and straight away from Yahweh's original plan for us, for men and for women. This is, he had, the people had gone so far away um, and from what Yahweh's original dream was. So what was God's original dream? What was God's original intent for his people, particularly for women? Did he view them as lesser than? Did he view them as less valuable than men? What are the ramifications for women, specifically women in the church? Are are there certain rules or are there certain things that they're prohibited to? So we're going to look at those questions. You know, if you've been around the church for a while or you've grown up in a church, you've probably heard that there's there's a couple of verses sort of scattered around the New Testament that seem to preclude women from certain roles, especially in leadership and teaching in the church. But honestly, to make sense of individual verses in the Bible, we've always got to, to, to take a 30,000-foot view and try and understand the whole arc of Scripture. Try and understand what God's been saying from Genesis to Revelation from beginning to end. So to look at the big picture, I think one of the most important things that we can do is start at the beginning. And you've heard me say this before if you've been around here, but Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the very beginning part of the Bible. If you haven't read that, sit and, and, and meditate on that for a little while because we can learn so much about so much from just reading the first three chapters of the Bible uh, uh, about family, about, about marriage, about sex, about relationship with God, about sin, about separation from God, about holiness and creation. It's all, there's so much to learn from right there at the very beginning of the Bible. And Genesis 1.27 says this, so God created mankind in his own image. It's not man, it's mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Did you know that it's male and female that makes up the image of God, right? It's not more male than female that makes up the image of God. God is not a he, okay? I know that's a bit of a shocker for some of us, but it's, it's in the, in, at least in the earthly way that we understand it. Uh, 
It's male and female together that makes up the image, a reflection of who God is. So women, you are godlike. Look at that. I'm getting a clap from the front row. <laughs> right? I thought I'd get a few more shouts from that. But thank you, Priscilla. I appreciate it. I'm not going to say the men are godlike because we we've been thinking that forever anyway. Do you know what I mean? But like, you need to hear that you are godlike. All right? uh, humans were uniquely created. We were, the, we were the crowning glory, like the crescendo of creation. And women are made in the image of God, and both men and women are a reflection of his image. Genesis 2 continues, and uh, it says in Genesis 2, So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, often some scholars will say, well, this is a, a, a clearly man was created first, therefore man's better than women. Um, I mean, if you actually use that logic, it's a bit flawed because it cre- creation had been pro- progressing over these, se- these, these six days and creation had been getting more complex, more beautiful, more incredible as time went on to the creation of mankind and man first and then woman second. So if you're going to use that theory, that would suggest that darkness is better than light and that fish are, are more important than animals and so on and so on. I mean, if anything, have you ever heard of the idea of a second draft? Which is better, like the first draft or the second draft, right? That was for you, ladies. You can uh, you know, thank me for that one later. But as, as that passage of Scripture continues, Genesis 2.18, then this is about their relationship together. The Bible says that the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, It's a shame that we've looked at just the English translation of this verse for most of our lives because it kind of gives us a wrong picture of what this was intended to say. You know, who wants to be a helper? It's not really something that most people, that most women would aspire to to do. Oh, my dream is to be a helper. You know, that's what I want to do. Um, It sounds more like we're we're asking the kids to help us with, with dishes or something like that, right? It sounds like we're asking someone to do chores for us. Um, that we're trying to get some, some people to help. And by the way, if you have young kids and they like being your helper, enjoy that. That, that runs out really, really quickly, okay? So, but this word helper, it's translated from a Hebrew word called ezer or ezer, E-Z-E-R. And it's rarely used to describe somebody. In fact, most of the hundred times that it's used in the Bible, it's used to describe Yahweh himself. And it's a word which means warrior, it's a word which, when, when, think about, I will provide for, for the man a suitable warrior to come alongside him. Now, that's, that's what I want, right? That's what she has been to me for the last <laughs> 22 years. Like, life is a fight. If God's going to provide anything for me, I don't want a helper. I want somebody who will stand with me in this fight. And that is the inference that this scripture is giving to us. Now, let me ask you this. Real quick challenge. Have you ever looked at that passage, men? And thought, you know what, I need, I need a helper. And I'm looking for somebody who is a helper. Or I'm married to somebody who is a helper. No, you need a warrior next to you. And uh, as that, the, that whole section of Scripture continues in Genesis 3, we see what we know is the fall of man. We see this passage in verse 6 where it says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband. Read this next bit with me. Who was with her? And he ate it. 
Again, some scholars want to say, well, woman was the first one to sin. She was the one that messed up, you know? <laughs> Typical, you know? Like, no. <laughs> Who was right there with her? Adam. The man was right there with her, and it appears that he was complicit in this whole experience. He didn't stop her. He didn't warn her, and he contributed and participated in what took place. And people often want to say that Eve sinned on her own, and she gave some to her husband. In a sense, she deceived her husband. She's the bad one. But he was right there with her. That's why I want to say, like, look carefully at these chapters of the Bible. Yeah, so we're going to fast forward through the Old Testament, and we're going to look at this thread of patterns where we actually see that God is empowering women to play prominent leadership roles amongst his people. So let's think about this, okay? God selects a female president, okay? This actually happened. Uh, Deborah was, was in that time, she was a female president, she was a political leader of Israel. She was the, a prophet who was considered a spiritual leader for the nation, okay? Rahab, God used Rahab to bring victory to assist the Israelites to conquer over Jericho. God, Yahweh uses a wise woman, Abigail, to advise kings and commanders, King David was the king at that time, to advise them in their political, in their, um, in their uh, strategic uh, acts there. God blesses Ruth's courage and her faithfulness and her devotion, and it's through her bloodline that Jesus was born through Mary. And then Esther was elevated into a place where she was put into a political position where God used her strategic position to, to free her country from genocide to free not just the women, but to free the men from genocide. And so for such a time as this, so God uses, he empowered women to have prominent roles in that. And then Yahweh leaves heaven and comes to earth in the person of Jesus. And then we see over and over again, Jesus empowering women. And remember, fast forward through the New Testament with Jesus, the, he, every time he was empowering women, he was doing it in a very cross-cultural way. He wasn't just like going along with the flow of culture, but he was acting extremely counter-culturally uh, and, yet, and, and really showing a different way of empowering women to what his culture was showing. The first person that Jesus revealed himself to, the first person that he just decided to say, I am, like, I, to let them know, hey, I'm the Messiah. He revealed himself to the woman at the well. He let her know who he really was. And then he sent her off mm. to share the message. This is a woman, this is in a culture where men would not be permitted to talk with women in the street. That was, not, that was very countercultural to have con- men having conversations with women in that culture. And especially, and, but yet he was doing that and he was like, sending her off to rep to and then he was revealing like his secret identity you know he hadn't really revealed his identity until that point and of all the people he chose he chose a woman to do that too and throughout throughout his ministry throughout those three years he involved and engaged women to be a part of that there were women amongst his greater group of disciples as well and then we have um mary of Bethany. You often hear, remember Mary and Martha, the two sisters, right? Uh, Mary of Bethany, she is noted for being right, sitting right next to Jesus and learning from him. Now, in that culture, it was men who, lear- men who learned from men. 
But she was doing something very countercultural. She was learning at, learning at his feet. And then Jesus made a point to comment and say, what she is doing is better than what her sister Martha was doing. Martha was off in the kitchen doing the kind of typical women's thing, doing the hospitality and that sort of thing. And he made a point to say, what Mary has chosen to do is better, to learn from the man, to learn in that context, to be a, a disciple in that way. Um, and then probably most significant is after the resurrection, like the most significant event in all of human history, the first people that Jesus en- engages with and after his resurrection, who does he, who does he come to? He, he, he engages with women. Shocking, right? Because in that culture, their testimony wouldn't have even been able to be submissive in a court of law. They, 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 for them to testify and say, I saw him alive, like if he was trying to be strategic, those are not the people he should have first revealed himself mm. to, right? But this is another demonstration of Jesus empowering women and elevating them and giving them value mm. in that context, which was so countercultural. Um, and that even though he knew that, Jesus was working to restore Yahweh's original dream for women. Mm. The, um, the early Christian leaders carried on the same theme. Paul talks uh, in the book of Romans about a woman named Junia, who he describes as someone who is outstanding among the apostles. The apostles was the, was the highest rank of, of leadership in the church, the people that were sent out to expand the kingdom and plant churches across the world. And, and Paul says, Junia is outstanding among the apostles, in a sense saying she was one of the apostles. He talks about, um, he talks about Priscilla and Aquila, a couple who led a church in their home. It's, it appears that they led this church together, much like we did in our home before we were meeting here. Um, and what's interesting is that Priscilla's name is often mentioned first. Out of seven times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the New Testament, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. You know how out of character that was for culture back then? I mean, it's even, in some cases, slightly unusual now. I get mail addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Colin Harfield, but we rarely get mail addressed to Mrs. and Mr. Liz Harfield. You know, it's, it's just culturally not the way things are often done. But to have the woman's name listed first was just highly unusual. The... Uh, uh, there was a, a mention of, of somebody called Philip who had four daughters who prophesied. Four daughters who declared God's word in the church. Now, Paul said that prophecy was the highest of the spiritual gifts, the most desirable spiritual gift. And the, here's four daughters in the church who prophesied. Then we hear about Phoebe. Phoebe, not Lisa Kudrow and friends, but Phoebe in, in the book of Romans was somebody who delivered the book of Romans to the Roman church, or the letter to the, to the Roman church. She was the one responsible to delivering it. She was one of Paul's major donors for his ministry. And traditionally, they would, you, you, you hear that somebody who delivered a letter was most likely the person who would have read it out as well. Now think about, if you've ever read the book of Romans, you can't even get through a few chapters without going, oh my gosh, I've got to get a coffee, because it's like the, the most weightiest passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament that teach us so much about our faith in Christ and salvation through grace. Uh, and, and yet, Paul chooses a woman to be the person that communicates one of the most powerful letters in the New Testament to the church. When you contrast that to something that was prevalent in in Judaism at the time and still now, and that's a prayer called the synagogue prayer, and part of that prayer says this, God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile. I thank you that you have not made me a slave. And I thank you that you have not made me a woman. You get this picture 
that the culture that Jesus and the early church leaders were, were bringing in was vastly dis- different from the tradition that they had been a part of. That's still a part of a traditional synagogue prayer even today. So when I read Galatians 3.28, I think Paul was refuting that prayer when he said, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul was trying to make the point, listen, whatever cultural baggage you come with, whatever you bring from your community and your life and your tradition, it's to go bye-bye in the church because there shouldn't be any racial or socioeconomic or or gender uh, hierarchy in the church. That's not the way the church is supposed to look. And then when it comes to our giftedness, when it comes to the way that we function in the gifts that God's given us, he makes it real clear in Romans 12, 6 to 8, that, that our giftedness isn't something that is gender specific. Listen to these verses here. It says, we all have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Not according to the gender given to each of us. According to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. Should we do an offering right now? We did that already. If it is to lead, do it diligently. He talks about leadership and teaching. Some of these roles that have, been, like, that, have, that have shut women out for centuries. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. He's made it clear that gifts are given to the church by the grace of God and are not gender specific. And we've always be, uh, made this a, a, a part of our church from the very beginning, that men and women should be able to serve side by side in the gifts that God's given them. We've had women preachers here, uh, guest women preachers, as well as men preachers. We've, even on our, uh, our leadership and our management team of Anthem, we have three men, I think, and two women that are leading Anthem, both spiritually and legally, in a sense, that uh, not because we want to be PC or anything like that, but just because they were the people who it seemed like God was bringing together to lead this church. Right. We want to share a little bit of our own personal story and journey with this. Um, so I'll just share a little bit of my background. Um, growing up, I um, was always sort of pointed out by my family, by my teachers as a leader. Like they'd always be like, you know, whenever there'd be games to play, I was sort of chosen to be the team captain or I or I'd kind of make myself the team captain. You'd make captain. yourself. Yeah, cuz that's be just, yeah. So but it's just kind of kind of who I was and and um and that was a I was affirmed through my life growing up with you know through my childhood and um and then when I was 17 I really fully gave my life to Jesus for the first time and I knew that at that time I wanted to spend the rest of my life sharing with people who Jesus was and leading them to him. And I wanted to do whatever I could, and it kind of also redirected my career paths at the time. And I ended up going to Bible college and becoming a biblical studies major. And I loved what I was learning, and I was really excited about the ministry that I was hoping to be involved in in my future. And one day, my um, the dean of biblical studies at the at the university uh, said he wanted to have a meeting with me, and he he had me into his office, and he sat me down, and he said shared with me that he felt that I was one of the brightest students that he'd had in his program, that my writing was like really strong, and he was just affirming me. He was saying, you know, in comparison to most of the other students, like you're consistently like 
towards the top of the class. And this was in a program where I was probably one of very few females in the program. It was, ma it was a pretty male-dominated program. And, um, and so he was affirming these things, and he, then he said, and I think that you need to change your major. And I was like, what? <laughs> where did this come from? And, um, and he's like, you know, I, I really think that you have so much potential. I would hate for you to miss out on that. Uh, and I think you should choose a more socially acceptable degree where you could actually get a job and be employable because as a woman, you're setting yourself up to be a great pastor's wife, but you're really never going to get employed in ministry. And so, um, he, so he suggested a few other options and he's like, well, maybe you should, you know, maybe you could be a counselor. You could help people that way, or you could be a teacher. Like those are the socially acceptable alternative career paths that he was suggesting that I consider. And so I left that meeting kind of gutted, kind of lost, kind of like, what? And, I, and I, it started me on this journey of really struggling with my identity, with a little bit of like, God, if you made me this way, and I've been, my, my gifts have been affirmed over and over again, but you must have made a mistake by making me a woman. You should have made me a man because then the, the path would have been so clear and I, and I know that like I would have been, all these doors would have opened, but because I'm a woman, man, God, you must have, you failed me. You made me, you made a mistake. There's something wrong with me that I have these desires and that I have this interest and, and, and I really struggled with it. And I, was, and I felt like I had no other alternative but to sort of choose like a second choice and it kind of felt like, you know, when you're thinking about your plans for your life, can you imagine, like, falling in love and finding the person that you really, really want to marry and then, be, and then being told, okay, you, that one, you can't have that person. Find a second option. It's just, it leaves you kind of feeling, like, not, like dissatisfied, right? And so that's kind of how I felt, and that's where I, I really struggled because I felt like I had to make a second choice. I think when we got, we got married... I brought into our relationship the sort of the kind of the preconceived ideas that I'd had growing up in the church that I'd been a part of. It was always led by men, supported by women. And in our family, um, I mean, my mum was like the ultimate helper. You know, she was, you know, she would, she started every, every morning by bringing us all cups of tea in the morning in our beds. It was awesome. But uh, she, was, she was what you would think of when you think of helper to my dad, who was very much uh, the one in control and the, 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 you know, the overseer of everything in the family. And for a long time, I think I continued to, probably without trying to do it, but just being on my merry way, um, you know, what's the word? Pushing down Liz's talents and abilities and in, in having her just assume that we will always follow me. We'll always follow, you know, what God's calling me to do and you'll somewhat get into line. And it wasn't until, I think, uh, as time progressed and it was, uh, I believe it was Easter Sunday on 2000, in 2008 when we were on a four or five or six hour car drive from somewhere that she really made it clear, this, this isn't working for me like this which led me to do a lot of soul-searching, but not only just soul-searching, but also to dive into the Scriptures and to question some of the, uh, the, the sort of norms that I'd been handed. Was this God's plan? Or, is, if, or, or for me to cry out to God and say, God, if you've called us both to lead in this way, you have to help us navigate how this should work. And I believe that, that uh, whether you're in a, a, a Christian marriage or whether you're married or single, um, I think there's a, a time where women need to recognize that God has gifted me in certain ways, and it shouldn't be restricted by, specifically by gender. 
So uh, today, I want to offer a couple of challenges, and we want to offer some challenges um, as, we, as we wrap this up. You know, as, as men and women sinned in Genesis chapter 3, uh, it was clear that nothing was ever going to be the same. And in fact, there's a, there's a, a verse that even says that the, the, the woman, in a sense, will be subservient to her husband. She will have a desire for her husband, and he will lead her. And when Jesus came, he put an, a, a complete end to the curse. And right now, we could either respect the curse that Jesus has ended, or we could perpetuate the curse. And for men in the room, I want to say it's vital that we don't prolong the curse. When women are overlooked in the church or in culture, in the workplace, or in our own lives, it's an example of us perpetuating the curse that Jesus has put an end to. When I think for men, it is our responsibility to as much as we can, to empower the role and the responsibility and the privileges of, of women in the church and in our lives and in our families. So we want to just challenge us as a church to restore God's dream. And I want to speak specifically to the women in this room. Women, the voice in your head that tells you that you can't or you shouldn't because of your gender, that is not the voice of God. Mm. That is not the voice of God. You are made in the image of God, and, and I just want to encourage you to listen, to go straight to God for your identity, for who he's made you to be, and to not allow culture to, to shape or to redirect the, the plans that he has for you and the way that you live out your lives. Mm-hmm. Let's pray. God, I, I, uh, I feel the heaviness even talking about this subject because I think it's touched a lot of our lives in various ways, um, whether we're a man or a woman, there's, there's been someone in, in our lives where we've seen some injustices that, that has happened because um, we've, we've put one person up and we've put another person down uh, related to gender. And I just pray, Lord, that you would free us to be the people that you've called us to be, to live out the callings, to use the, the gifts that you've given us, and to not allow... Um, any, anything that is not from you to keep us from living out those lives. Lord, we, we know that your kingdom is, is coming, and, Lord, we have a part to play in to build that, into, into to, to bringing people into that kingdom, God. And I just pray that for everybody here that you would help us to, um, to restore your plan and your purposes for our lives, that we can live out lives free to follow you and to live our lives just to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.